0: You'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm seventeen, Psalm seventeen. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, and attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From Your presence let my vindication come. and Let Your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and You will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me and hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths, they speak arrogantly, they have now surrounded our steps, they have set their eyes to cast us to the ground, and he is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him and subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Well, What do you want on your tombstone? I think perhaps many of us in hearing that question have thoughts that are immediately drawn to the old frozen pizza commercials of the 1990s. Um, But I don't think that should distract us from the seriousness of such a question. You know, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite things to do, I lived about 45 minutes south of Princeton and Uh, On weekends, me and some friends would go up and would walk the streets of Princeton and particularly go uh, to the the graveyard there, to the cemetery. You see uh, a number of people who are are buried there. Um, It's kind of surprising the sheer number of people that you would recognize whose names are on the gravestone, particularly even uh, the heroes of the faith. My my personal favorite, you know, I I don't think that Protestants have uh, pilgrimages, But if we did, I would consider this to be one, as I'd go and and visit the grave of B.B. Warfield. And his why, for you'd see uh, the grave of Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, Jonathan Edwards, all in the same plot, all in the same cemetery. I think it's interesting, you can often tell uh, a man's legacy by the inscription that's seen and marked on one's grave. It's not not a time to be trite. You know, I was, I was looking at kind of uh, funeral inscriptions this past week on the internet and how, uh, uh, you know, one of, one of the members of the Ramones, his inscription is something like, okay, I'm going now. It's very cliche, very trite, maybe funny, uh, but at the end of the day, there, there's no real substance there. What would you want written on your tombstone? You know, when Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, died of tuberculosis in 1748, she, if you're not familiar with her, she was the fiancé of the, the, the famed uh, missionary to the Native uh, Americans, David Brainerd. Uh, and he had died of tuberculosis, and just a few months later she died of the same disease and was buried uh, in Massachusetts. She's only 17 years old when she died. And on her tombstone were written these words that come from this particular psalm. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. This is David's hope. This is really the, the momentum towards this psalm, leads us. You know, you, you look at uh, the, the funerary and, and um, uh, grave inscriptions of kings of old where they, they write down all of their accomplishments here on earth. You have the, the Behistun inscription in ancient Persia. Uh, along the side of a mountain listing all the ancient accomplishments of one of the great Persian kings, Darius. Uh, You have uh, Augustus Caesar, who has all of his accomplishments posted in various cities throughout the empire. And yet David here, we see inscribed his hope, not on a massive uh, wall or memorial, but here inscribed in Scripture itself, of the hope that he has where he looks not back on his past accomplishments, but he looks forward to something that lies beyond the grave. A fevered longing for that day when he would, like Moses, see God face to face. May it be our prayer as well. We're going to notice here that there's a threefold repetition to this psalm that escalates in its intensity and its urgency. If you look in verse 1, he begins by saying, Here. And then in verse 6, Incline your ear. This literally stretch out your ear. And then in verse 13, Arise. Uh, you, you feel the intensity mounting as we work our way through this psalm. So let's take those particular signals and divide this psalm into three sections. First, we'll consider. A righteous cause in verses 1 to 5. And then a wonderful refuge in verses 6 to 12. And finally, a satisfied soul in verses 13 to 15. A righteous cause, a wonderful refuge, and a satisfied soul. I think there's a wonderful arrangement here to the Psalter. You know, If we use our hymnal, we notice that a lot of the hymns are arranged in a particular uh, fashion uh, thematically. And I think the same is true in many ways uh, for the Psalms. Psalms 15, 16, and 17, I think, are intended to be read uh, together as they speak of that righteous man who has triumphed over death. If you recall, uh, just a few months ago when we looked at Psalm 15, there was that question, who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? It is the one with the clean hands who can ascend to the gates of heaven itself. Psalm 16, it is this righteous man, the one whom the Lord Himself would not permit to see corruption in the grave. The one who holds the power of an indestructible life. And now here in Psalm 17, we're told of that righteous man, the Messiah, whose joy extends to something that transcends the grave where he enters into the everlasting joy and pleasures of God Himself. David here praying under inspiration of the Spirit prays the prayers that Christ Himself prays as the great psalm singer of the congregation of the people of God as Hebrews 2 tells us. And here the Messiah begins his petition by giving grounds for a particular complaint. This psalm is a psalm that we would call a prayer of supplication. As we notice the and we've talked about on our Wednesday night uh, meetings, there are different types of prayers. Here is what we would call a petition or a supplication, where David himself is crying out to the Lord, asking for deliverance. And in verses 1 to 5, he presents his reasons for praying for deliverance. very simply, uh, the prayer he asks is a common prayer that we see repletively throughout the Psalms. Vindicate me, save me, O God, from my enemies, for they surround me, though I have done them no wrong. We see the same theme over and over and over again, the same type of prayer prayed in different ways. And yet, I think we would do well to recognize how dangerous a prayer this is when you ask the judge of heaven and earth to judge righteously and without partiality. Adjudicate injustice. to pray that the judge of the earth would do what is right, a judge who cannot be manipulated, bribed, or swindled, a judge who shows no partiality, a judge who will not wink at sin. Are you ready to bear under the scrutiny of such a kind of prayer? To stand before the Lord and say, shine the spotlight on me. I have done no wrong. Right. How many of us have ever wanted someone to adjudicate in a manner uh, that uh, benefited us? Uh, and yet, when it comes time for the cross-examination, as it were, imagine uh, you know, having a conflict with your siblings as a kid. You say, Mommy, Mommy, my brother did this. My sister did this to me. My, my brother hit me. And then your, your mom says, or your dad says, Well, what did you do for your brother to hit you? And you go, Well, I didn't do anything knowing deep down that if he asks any further questions, the truth will really come out. That maybe you're not as innocent as you're making yourself out to be. When the truth comes out, we find that we are not as squeaky clean as we have made others think we are. Perhaps during that time of cross-examination, how many of you have ever been asked by your parents when they start probing and you realize in the middle of questioning, oh no, I have done something wrong. How often do we hear of individuals misappropriating the courts for subversive ends, manipulating the system for sinister goals, and yet David prays with confidence, Lord deliver me, this prayer is guileless, there's no deceit to be found, there's no shadow, no hint, of deception in my prayer. Test me, O God, examine the situation, scrutinize my petition, probe my heart, and see if there is any shred of deceitfulness in me. Here is a man who is confident that he has done no wrong in whatever this particular situation is. And David is able to pray that because he has undergone what one commentator has called the dark night of the soul. You see here as David says he has been visited in the night. He's been tested, tried, and found sure. Though distressed by various trials, his faith has been tested by fire and found pure. His integrity shines in the midst of this prayer. Note the language that we see here in these first five verses. He has a prayer that is free of deceit. He prays for the Lord to adjudicate the right. There is no transgression on his lips. There is no transgression in sight. Though he has been treated maliciously, David has been kept from violence, both without and even within, even within the deepest recesses of his heart. He is not one who is praying and trying to use the Lord to wipe out competitors. Uh, He is one who has been wronged, woefully so in his prayer word of god you know I, I just saw you know i love the uh, basically any batman movie or cartoon that's ever come out i think i've seen how many of us love seeing these kind of masked vigilante movies uh And yet there there comes a point in time where you start cheering for the vigilante and yet it might be okay in the comics, but in reality, vigilante justice is not okay. David has not assumed the role of the righteous judge. He has not taken that prerogative to himself. David is not playing the role of Batman here, taking matters into his own hands Rather, He has entrusted the matter to Him who judges justly. I think we might, just as a kind of sidebar comment, be reminded of a warning that I think is a danger that can befall any of us. To be aware of the dangers and the pitfalls of a false confidence. As the old saying goes, the higher the climb, the harder the fall. The further we progress in godliness, the easier it becomes to stumble. As you're soaring the heights of holiness, as it were, to look around you and then begin to be tempted to say to yourself, look how far I have progressed. Look how far I have come. And to lose sight of the Lord of righteousness and think that our progress has been our own doing. Paul himself warns, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is a dangerous prayer. That's my point that the psalmist prays. I'm not saying don't pray it. I'm saying you better be ready for the consequences when you pray a prayer like this. When you say, Lord, examine me and vindicate me. Because the Lord says, "All right, do you want this close cross-examination? And yet, David is able to say with utmost confidence here, I have kept my way according to your word. How is it that the young man is to keep his way? The psalmist writes elsewhere. It's by keeping God's word. By keeping his way according to to the commands and instructions of Scripture. David's confidence remains fixed. You know, though his confidence is not on himself, you see here. It's not on his good works. Rather, it is on the path of righteousness that God has declared. If you look here in verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. David keeps his eyes on the main Thing. This is not a self-congratulatory prayer. This is not the prayer of the Pharisees saying, "God, I thank you that I am not like other men." This is David saying, "Lord, I have vowed, I have, I have promised, and I have purposed that I will not transgress with my lips. And try as I have may, I've, I've, I've maintained this. Adjudicate me." Though maliciously mistreated, David does not play judge, jury, and executioner, but rather he entrusts the matter to the one who alone is judge. David has purpose that he, would keep, he will keep his lips shut in the matter. His transgression will not proceed from my mouth, and yet he prays that the Lord himself will not keep that. You see that here in verse 7 when he says, Wondrously show your steadfast love? That is Exodus language. When you hear of the wonders or wonderful works of God, there's a translation of this repeated phrase that continues to pop up in the book of Exodus regarding the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh's rule. You see in Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 7, where the Lord declares the wonderful works he would show in enacting the judgment upon the enemies of the people of God. And so, whenever you read in the Bible of God working wonders, you need to think of the Exodus is the language of redemption. In fact, in the New Testament, just a side note here, the the language for miracles and signs that Jesus performs in the Gospels, it's a Greek rendering of that same concept. It points to this Exodus language of redemption. You think of the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15 where Israel, after being uh, led through the waters, And seeing Pharaoh's army drowned, they cry out in one accord, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And now David says, show your wondrous works of steadfast love and faithfulness. Though that there though there are those who have conspired together against the Lord and His Messiah, the Lord stands as a wonderful refuge to shelter His own from the attacks of the enemy. There's a double imagery here that we see in verse eight that speaks of the Lord's protective hand towards His people. The first is when David prays, "This Lord, keep me as the apple of Your eye." Here, speaking of the pupil, perhaps the most sensitive part of the body. You know, I'm 41 years old, and There has not been a single eye examination I have ever passed, Uh, not because I'm necessarily blind, but because I can't even stand up to the air puff machine thing. There's kind of this instinctive reflex that I have that I can't even have uh, the air puff against my pupils where the doctor every time has always said, I give up, Charles, whatever. (laughs) Just close your eyes and, you know, one eye and just read off the letters to the board. It's not like I'm a child, but I'm still doing the same thing I did as a child. There's this instinctive reflex. It's not that I'm not trying. I'm trying to open my eyes. Uh, but there's something about it instinctively that I want to protect the apple of my eye. I try as I may to keep my eyes open. I just can't. Well, that's what Israel is, as it were, to the Lord. He's not simply reluctantly protecting Israel. We can, in one sense, say it is instinctive. This is the apple of God's eye. You, the people of God, are the apple of the Lord's eye. second image we see here builds on that. It's not only instinctive, it's maternal. As David prays to the Lord saying, Hide me in the shadow of your wings. You kind of have this picture of a mother hen covering her brood under her wings to keep them safe from the blazing fire that permeates uh, the local farm. Yet, what we see here is this is not freely poetics. We find this same double imagery in reference to the Exodus, to Israel's deliverance from Egypt and guiding through the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 to 11. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Once again, we see this Exodus language. David appropriating the language of Israel in the wilderness saying, Lord, be my Redeemer. David prays for a salvation that is comparable to Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh. It's nothing short of a miracle that has to take place. It is what he is praying for, the wonderful works of God. David embodies the nation of Israel, as it were, and asks for the Lord to repeat history yet again. To enact a greater exodus that will redeem them even, as we'll see in a few moments in verse 15, that will redeem him even from death itself. And so in verses 10 to 12, David describes the predatory nature of his foes. It's rather grotesque imagery we see here. Uh, The the ESV translates it like this. It's, It's a good translation. They close their hearts to pity. But quite literally, the text reads, they have shut their fat hearts. You're given an image of something like Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars, or Baron Harkonnen from Dune, fat men with double chins and turkey necks. The idea of having these fat hearts and even fat mouths suggests violent men who have had their fill of the pleasures of this life at the expense of others. We see this phrase pop up a couple times in the Old Testament. You'll see in Job 15, uh, again in Psalm 73, the men with fat heart in Scripture implies a a numbness, a callousness to those tender affections that ought to flow naturally from the heart. I'm I'm not a skinny fella. If I kind of pinch the side of my stomach, I can't feel it because what? The fat is numbing Here are men with fat hearts. These are calloused men. And yet, it's a picture of calloused men who are themselves gargantuous, living high on the hog, predators, ravenous in their speech and behavior. How is it that they enact such treachery, such violence? Well, verse 10, the violence is found in the words that they speak, bringing us yet again to a point that we've come to over and over again, how wicked slander truly is. Where words can cause greater and more lasting damage, far worse than the bruises of sticks and stones. Here are men prowling like lions in the prime of life, seeking someone to devour. Peter himself appropriates this language to speak of our great adversary, the devil in First Peter 5.8. Here we find that the Messiah is encircled. He is entrapped. And there is no hope for deliverance apart from a miracle. And so he prays in this third section not only for the Lord to hear him, but for the Lord to arise and vindicate him. David pleads his case before the judge of all the earth to render judgment. Note this, David's not asking for the Lord to give his enemies a parking ticket. This is the end of the line. He is asking for the Lord to bear his sword. David is praying for final judgment. For the Lord to judge in equity, to save his people, and to judge his adversaries. David's petition becomes one of repetition. As he identifies with increasing particularity the object of his complaint. Look at verse 13 as he describes the wicked men. Verse 14, those wicked men are men of the world, men of the world whose portion is in this life. An alternative way to translate this, you'll see this in a lot of your the bottom of your Bibles if you have the ESV. Men whose portion in life is of the world. There's an earthliness uh, to uh, the prosperity of these wicked men. In other words, what David is praying about are earthly-minded individuals who have not set their affections on the world to come. Remember what we've seen earlier in Psalms nine to fourteen: the wicked who say in their heart, foolishly, there is no God; there is no one to whom I can, I have to give an account. Therefore, I will do whatever I please. There's no one to see. There's no one to render judgment. This world is all there is, so I will do all I can to claim all I can get. Men who trust in the abundance of their own riches. It is an earthly mindedness that David is speaking of here. They're the men of Romans 1, the nations who have taken even the good gifts that God gives and have turned them and perverted them into ultimate ends. Notice what David says here in uh, halfway through verse 14. Those men of the world whose portion is in this life, well, what portion do they have? Well, he says, oh Lord, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. You know, from, from a regular vantage point, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Oh, Here's, here's a good family man. Here's a guy who's providing for his children. These are good gifts, yet these wicked men have made that their ultimate aim and end. One is perhaps reminded of Marlon Brando and the Godfather. On one hand, you could say the Godfather was a really great family man. Good businessman, cared for his family, defended them to the hilt. And yet that became his, uh, his, his chief obsession. Same thing with Al Pacino. And for those of you who are familiar with the story. Here are wicked men who have made and turned God's created good gifts into ultimate aims. They have now corrupted and perverted it. They have made it their lot in life. That is what satisfies them. David could have easily uh, pointed out perverted things that they may take pleasure in, and yet David here actually takes the time to go, no, they, they actually find their contentment, their satisfaction in good things. But they're lesser things, but they've made them ultimate ends. Their own families, the storehouse of goods that they lay up for their own sons and daughters, by earthly standards, a respectable aim. And yet that is the problem, isn't it? An earthly mindedness. If you were to ask any of these men, what is your chief end? Their simple response would be something like this. More. More things, more money, more power, more wealth. What a contrast there is here between uh, the wicked who have made these lesser goods their chief end and David himself who finds his satisfaction not with the things of earth, but the things of heaven. That's what he says here in this final verse. My satisfaction lies uh, heavenward. It is otherworldly. I'll be satisfied when I awake to see my God face to face. I think there are two things to note here. First, David is longing for a lasting treasure. He's longing for the sight of God. In the Old Testament, if you read Numbers chapter 12, for instance, this was a privilege that was uniquely afforded to Moses alone. Where it was said that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man does with a friend. And yet even then we are told in Exodus 33 that there is still some form of veiling that Moses had to undergo as the Lord passed before him. And yet David now sees this great blessing as belonging to him as well. When I awake, I will be satisfied with the sight of you. I'll be satisfied with your likeness. Question is, when is this heavenly sight afforded to be afforded to David? That leads us to the second point. He says very clearly here, when I awake. Now as David's saying, I'm going to go to sleep tonight when I awake, first thing in the morning. 6.30, I'm going to hit the alarm clock, and I'll finally see the Lord face to face. No, the, the, the language here of, uh, of being awakened is a scriptural metaphor and language for resurrection from the dead. You know, you, you think of uh, in Mark chapter 5, little girl has died. Jesus goes... Uh, to the to the funeral. And as the family is weeping over the death of their little girl, Jesus says, don't weep. She's not dead. She is only sleeping. And then later, when word comes that Jesus' own friend, Lazarus, is sick, Jesus says to his disciples, "Quick, we must go. Lazarus has fallen asleep. We must hurry. And all of his disciples say, well, if he's fallen asleep, What's the rush, essentially? We'll wake him up after his nap, and that's when it says, And Jesus then spoke plainly to them, Lazarus is dead. And isn't it interesting that from the rest of the New Testament forward, after the resurrection of Christ, when uh, Paul will speak of the death of saints, he so often doesn't use the language of death, but of those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. It's not a new concoction. It's something that we see in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah chapter 26, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel chapter 12, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and contempt. If death is spoken of as a slumber, then resurrection is spoke in terms of awaking from that slumber. So anybody, first of all, who tells you that you, don't, you can't find the resurrection in the Old Testament has not read the Old Testament. Jesus Himself confronts the Sadducees who don't believe in the, the resurrection. Jesus says, you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God because what is it that the Lord says to Abraham? I am the God of your father, Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, therefore God is not the God of the dead, He is the God of the living. The resurrection shines throughout the Old Testament, including here. David here speaks of the resurrection hope that he has and the satisfaction it will bring. This hope satisfies me more than the earthly gains and rewards. That great hope is this, that when I awake, I will see my Savior face to face. Andrew Bonar, uh, in his commentary on this chapter, rightly describes Psalm 17 as this. The righteous one's dissatisfaction with the present world. It is the prayer of the Messiah, who fully blameless was delivered from death and having triumphed over death, has been brought into the eternal bliss of His heavenly Father. And yet Hebrews tells us that Christ, the great psalm singer, has opened up that new and living way that we might enter in as well, that by His resurrection, He has opened up an entry into the world to come. So on the one hand, we could say Psalm 17 is a prayer of the Messiah, yes. But not only the Messiah. For all who are in Christ, this prayer is yours as well. As we are made the beneficiaries of Christ's victory over death. I think that Paul himself likely had the psalm in mind when he writes to the church of Philippi, contrasting their meager estate with the destiny of the wicked. This is Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this concerning the wicked their end is destruction, their God is their belly. Isn't that the very thing that we see with the wicked in verse 14? Uh, You fill their womb with treasure. And yet, this treasure is the very thing that causes them to drown and sink into the miry depths. They glory in their shame with minds set on what? On earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The Apostle John says the same thing in his letter Beloved, we are God's children now. What will that look like when He appears? John says, I don't know. But we do know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. It's a great hope not only for David, but it's a hope for all of us. The day of Christ's return, our transformation will be made complete. As the Spirit is working inwardly in our hearts now, to mold us and conform us to Christ, so uh, shall at Christ's return when death is undone will raise us to indestructible bodies and we will be transformed into His likeness. What does that look like? I do not know, but it is our great hope. We know this, that when we see Christ by faith in Scripture, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we are transformed from glory to glory to glory as the Spirit works in our hearts to make us look more like Him so that the day when our faith is made sight, that transformation will be completed in the twinkling of an eye. We find here our doctrine of the resurrection of the dead as the saints hope even in the Old Testament. As the psalmist satisfies himself, not with the things of earth, not even the good things and the good treasures that the Lord gives us in this life. Rather, the psalmist satisfies himself with the promise of seeing God as his chief reward. May this be our prayer as well. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be satisfied with nothing less uh, Than The promise of seeing Your Son on the last day. Uh, we pray that You would search our hearts and try us. That there would be no wickedness found in us. And for that sin that You find, we pray that You would uh, purge us as the dross. That our faith might be found blameless on the last day. The day when our faith is made sight. Protect us and deliver us, we pray. We ask in Christ's name, amen.